And welcome back to Fully Equipped. Jay Wall, Gene, Serial Killer. Boys, we got a lot to get into this week. I'm not going to belabor the point, but I do have to ask, how are we doing? Hey, no complaints here. Home. Haven't been on the road for a couple of weeks. Starting to get the itch, but always nice to be home for a while. It's uh, 105 degrees, and uh, I'm in Palm Springs, California, and it's uh, 10 o'clock in the morning. I'm not happy. Yeah, you're in Palm Springs. You apparently don't have very good internet. We're going to get through this, I promise. But it's uh, Uncle Gene's having technical difficulties already. It could make for a uh, an interesting episode of this week's podcast. Anyway, all right. The, as I mentioned, there's a lot going on. First and foremost, we, we have to discuss. We don't talk a lot about um, like the, the industry as a whole. We, we spend more time talking about the gear pros are using, how that gear pertains to the, the average golfer. We try and make you smarter. But there are a couple of things that I saw come across the news wire in the last few days. And one of these, it has a, a name that we, we might recognize. So Sax Perny Golf was was IPO'd yesterday. And Sax Perny went off. It, on the first day, the the IPO had a 624% gain. Now it's it's fallen back. It opened at four dollars now. I'm, as I'm looking at it, it's at it's at five dollars. But somebody in this room knows a little bit about Sax Perny. Uncle Gene, what what the hell happened in the last day? <laughs> it, it was it was an interesting ride yesterday. Let's put it that way. So um, so a little background on Sax Perini. I think we've talked about on this pod before. You know, my father founded uh, a company in the eighties called Hickory Stick USA, and they were located in Temecula, California. And one day. A guy by the name of Ely Calloway cold called my dad. He answered the phone and said he was interested in investing in a golf co- company. And the company became Callaway Hickory Stick and then Callaway Golf. My dad was the first president. Um, he developed the S2H2 irons. He actually developed the first milled putters. So he's been in the industry forever. Steve Sachs has been a partner with him at various ventures, Goldwyn. Um, they, he's he's an old guy from Carbite, so they have a lot of history together. They were approached about five years ago to create some designs and lend their name to these series of putters. Um, my dad has always a classic approach to design in that if you look at their putters, they're homages to previous um, models but with modern twists being milled. Um, These putters have the most tungsten of any putters that you've ever seen, especially in relation to um, toe and heel. Their MOIs are off the chart in relation to their um, design. So they've been designing these putters. They also designed this technology called ultra low balance point, meaning that the balance point of these putters is sometimes right at the hosel or one inch above the hosel. And the head weight of the putters is the same as a normal head weight, but it's an ultralight shaft and an ultralight grip. And if you go back to, you know, Tiger talks about it, a lot of players don't realize this, but there's closure in putters. 
and a putter goes from open to closed with this um, lightweight grip and lightweight shaft. It's kind of the opposite of counterbalancing, but under pressure, it allows you to close the putter and allows you to feel the head. So those are the, um, the physics and the kind of the marketing behind it, but they've had these uh, principles out of Sherwood country club in uh, near Los Angeles. And they got together with a firm to go public and it went public yesterday and it just went bonkers. And it was up, like you said, $28, $29 at the end of the day. I think the greater point is people are still high on golf. People are yes. still interested in golf and there just has not been an IPO or anything. And, you know, post pandemic, we haven't seen the fall off. We've got a, a thirst for all things golf. And, you know, because of that, there's a uh, there's there's just a strong interest in anything that comes out that's golf related. The, the irony is five, six years ago, an IPO was pure death in the golf space because nobody wanted to touch it. But now people are hungry. They hear golf and they get excited. You know what the trading volume was yesterday for for Sex Perenny when it IPO? I did not know. I didn't look eight, that close. Eight million shares. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, so it makes me wonder something because Gene, you brought up my my next question to to you too, which is what inning do you think the golf industry is in right now? Are we in the second inning, third inning? Are we a little bit further along? It. I keep waiting for for this train to stop just racing down the tracks. I, I, I'm it's, waiting. It, it, I'm waiting for a loss of momentum, but I have not seen it yet. What what inning do you think the industry is in? Anybody who gives you that prediction, it's, I mean, let's face it, in when the pandemic hit, you know, in 2020, everybody, I mean, from Nobel winning economists down to the guy on the street said, we're going into a recession, a recession's coming. And I remember specifically, Chris, was that January or February that I called you and I said, hey, man how are things looking this year? How bad is it going to be? And you said, we're booked out two to three months. We can't, you know, we're opening stores like wildfire. And I was like, huh, that's, you know, and everybody <laughs> in January, February was like, man, this thing's going to slow down. The recession's coming. It's coming. Um, no one's been able to predict. It's defied expectations. I think, and, you know, I'm going to curse myself with this statement because it's going to go on tape now, but it's like, I think golf is diversified enough to really make it a little less recession proof, but maybe not. But I think that like the general economy, as long as um, people can afford to buy golf equipment, they will. The other interesting thing, I think the trend that needs to be noted, and I've been hearing about anecdotally, is people have these flex schedules where now they have Wednesdays available or Thursdays or they go into the office two or three days a week so they can afford to cram their work in the morning, tee it up in the afternoon. Whereas when you're in the office Monday through Friday, you simply can't do that. So I think that has, that has allowed the momentum to maintain um, for the industry as a whole. And the more you play, Generally, the more you buy, because you become more of a sticko and you listen to podcasts like this to find out, you know, what's the best piece of gear. And it's, it's, um, it's a, um, uh, I think as long as, uh, players have time 
and there's no time constraints, which was really pushing on the industry as a whole in the 2000s. I think that um, I think I think we'll maintain, but to be honest, it's a fool's guess as well because no one would have predicted what happened during the pandemic, and no one would have predicted afterwards. So it's I I'm just enjoying the ride for as long as I can. Chris, it, it I mean Gene hit on some great points there. I mean we are we're holding strong. With uh, with true spec, with the amount of bookings that we have, uh, opening no opening new locations, expanding, uh, hiring new fitters, trying to meet the demand that we currently have. Our build shop is slammed, and the I mean the demand for equipment for all things golf for fittings is uh, I mean it has not slowed down for us really. It's rocking and rolling with uh, with no end in sight and. I mean, it's always kind of interesting this time of year going into Q3, getting closer to the end of the season uh, as far as the, the short season clubs up north of the snow belt. And I mean, our studios in Boston, Chicago, New York, I mean, they've just been busy since January and there's there's no end in sight. I mean, at least at this point for us. So we are full steam ahead i'm actually going to be heading back out on the road again on the 7th and heading back to new york uh we have a new facility opening uh pretty much right by grand central station with big expectations uh as far as what that facility is going to produce and i mean adding another location in new york um then also opening liberty national earlier this year i mean we are we're all in and uh the local markets are supporting it and everybody's been extremely receptive and it's uh it's busy busy for us speaking of incredible demand and i wanted to i wanted to tie these two stories together the the ipo for sex brenny that just absolutely exploded in the announcement from TaylorMade that they are going to be partnering with bay's golf experience and suites to create a brand new resort on 18 acres that's going to be situated just next to the PG of America's headquarters up here in Frisco, close by to where I live, that's going to be opening in the spring of 2025. And boys, this, I think this speaks to where we are with, with the golf industry right now. So for those that haven't heard about this, this new hotel that they're opening up is going to feature private hitting bays inside individual suites it's going to be four stories it's going to have the largest television in north texas it's also going to allow you to get custom fit for brand new tailor-made gear at the hotel that they're going to be able to the custom build for you. you're going to be able to watch them custom build it so now when you wake up at this hotel you're going to be able to just walk out onto your patio you're going to have a, a you know astroturf hitting mat and you're going to be able to just whack balls to to little island greens. Oh, by the way, they're also going to have a 25,000 square foot putting green and chipping area. I, like this is, in, the this is insane to me. The, they, they do. They look phenomenal. But this is insane to me because this hotel caters to golfers. Not Not a hotel with a golf course. This is a hotel that caters to golfers with the ability to hit golf balls 
from the moment you wake up and get out of your bed, you can go step out onto your patio and, and warm up with a wedge. I, I, I don't think I ever thought in my wildest dreams that I would ever see a hotel like this, but here we are. It's going to open in this, like I said, spring of 2025 and it's going to be all the golf you can handle. And I'm going to have uh, to go spend a night there. I'm going to have to do uh, 100%, just for I think we need a report on site. I mean, I think we have to do a review and an experience. For the podcast, and, right? We got to all the, go. For the pot. For the pot. We, it, it needs to happen. It's just a thing that needs to, needs to happen. Mark, Maybe put it on the calendar. we recording from there. Yeah, let's make it happen. Yeah. I mean, coach, I've got coach some that's a sponsorship. Made. Yeah, that's a sponsorship <laughs> opportunity right there. Let's make this happen. I'd like to get a sponsorship for Gene's Wi-Fi, but yeah, let's, let's start with a sponsorship uh, at this, at this new tailor-made Bay's golf experience and suites. Anyway, it it is it is going to be an absolutely incredible resort. As Chris mentioned, the renderings. If you haven't seen it, just just type in Taylor Made uh, Bay's experience, and you'll be able to see them. There's a couple stories up there, but yeah, th- this looks like the future. And with the largest television in North Texas, I mean, you're going to be able to sit in in this uh, kind of a banquet area and watch watch live golf. I. I will go over there. It's like in all seriousness, when it opens, I'll go over there on a Saturday or a Sunday and see what it's like. I'm sure that place is going to be popping off. Yeah, I'm I'm excited for it. And I mean, if they're if they're talking about early 2025, I mean, they need to be breaking ground on this thing like ASAP. And uh, the president of our company and I were were talking about this this morning with our uh, our VP of marketing and just kind of talking about. Like this is to your point, Jay Wall, catering to that that golfer. This isn't a uh, this isn't another Top Golf experience. I mean, this is a level above the the Top Golf experience with that player in mind. So I'm I'm excited for it. I think it's going to be really really exciting to see once it's uh, actually up and running. Yeah, I like I said, cannot wait. We're going to have to do a pod from there. Just give you give you guys a good opportunity to come to, to Texas. Maybe just don't do it during the summertime. It's it's a little toasty here right now. Ah, anyway. I live in Phoenix. No big deal. Gene, I Gene might have to wait till the winter. Yeah, Gene would melt <laughs> if he came here. Hey, um, although he's in Palm Springs, Springs right now. Yeah, he is. It's 105. <laughs> sitting, no big deal. Sitting 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 outside so that so that my Wi-Fi can kind of work on my uh, <laughs> cellular network. So. Well, speaking of in-demand gear, uh, we got to let you know that. Fully Equip is brought to you by one of the most in-demand pieces of gear for your clubs. That would be your grips. And Golf Pride. Thanks to our friends at Golf Pride for sponsoring the podcast. We've been talking about Golf Pride for months now. They've they've been a major sponsor of the pod. And we are grateful for that because they have some of the best grips in the industry. Everything from the CPX to the MCC that guys like John Rahm uses all the way down to the Tour Velvet. If you're not a Tour Velvet guy like I am, maybe you like that reminder ridge on the back of it. You can actually get a Tour Velvet with a reminder ridge on the backside. They call it their Align technology. It's a really cool tech from Golf Pride. They they have a wider range of grips, and I think that's what I love most about them. They're the most played grip on the PGA Tour, and I think that's what most people know when they think of Golf Pride. But what I think about when I think about Golf Pride is all of the different grip options that they have. So if you're somebody who likes a firmer grip, they have that for you. If you're somebody who likes a, a softer, more something that feels kind of pillowy, they have that for you too. They've got putter grips, literally any 
conceivable grip that you want. Golf Pride has it. Go check it out, golfpride.com. And if you want free shipping on your next order, make sure you enter fully equipped at checkout. That is F-U-L-L-Y-E-Q-U-I-P-P-E-D for free shipping on your next order. All right. So let's get down to a little bit of meat and potatoes here. So as everybody knows, if you listen to this podcast, Titleist recently released their T-Series irons. That would be the T100, the T150, T200, and the T350. If you're counting at home, that's four models. So thankfully, we were able to test all four models on the robot. And we have a story coming next week with insights. But if you listen to the pod, I always want to give people who take time out to listen to the pod an opportunity to get a little bit of a sneak peek. So Gene... What do you think? Should we offer up some some insights that we saw from from robotic testing? Absolutely. Yes, we most definitely should. So let me tell you something that I absolutely first and foremost that I that I love about this new T T series lineup. When you have four models in an iron lineup, I think a lot of people start to worry that there's going to be a lot of overlap between models, meaning that there's not going to be enough differentiation there for for people when it comes to to you know what club should i buy or which two models should i blend together because golfers are going to want you know for example a lot of golfers are going to want a high launch with their long irons they're going to want more control on the mid and the short irons maybe they want a smaller profile um but they're going to want more distance at the top of the set and and they're going to be for for a lot of golfers out there they're going to be looking at at more of the dispersion and control as they get down into the wedge and looking at these numbers, Gene, from, from golf laboratories, there is a lot of differentiation here. Some pretty wide deltas. I mean, what's the first thing that stands out to you when, when you're looking at all the data once the dust is settled from testing? Well, I think the first thing that stood out to me was the, the, the first thing that I reflected on was their driver line. And they did a really nice job. Um, with their driver line this year of differentiating products. And I think they did the same thing with this set of irons is you've got everything from um, a traditional iron on a traditional player's blade on one side to a, um, uh, a, a cavity back distance rocket ship on the other side. But in between, you've got these interesting examples of um irons that have ball speed increases but still um maintain launch and so they're they're they're, they're i i think not completely something for everyone but pretty close they did a really good job and i just like their design philosophy as a whole these days of really differentiating products and not keeping everything but, you know, just putting window dressing on and having two or three models that have performance characteristics that are similar. Yeah. I mean, if you look at, as Gene mentioned, from from the top here, T100, everybody wants to fixate on ball speed. I, I don't care who you are. That's It's important. It's an important number. And golfers who are older are typically looking for something that's going to be faster because maybe maybe they've lost a little bit of of speed on their fastball. And if, look, if you, if you're 
somebody who is going to prioritize control and workability, you're probably a team 100 guy, but you know, you're going to be given a ball speed. It, it's just, it's an, it, there's trade-offs. We talk about the levers all the time. There's going to be trade-offs. And if you look at the ball speed numbers between T100 and T350, it's a six, a six mile an hour difference. I mean, that's pretty substantial. But again, it, it points to the fact that T350 is a pure distance iron. It's they they thin down the profile. It's no longer, uh, in my opinion, no longer looks all that chunky. It, it has a much more streamlined, compact profile. I ended up, I think I said it on the pod, I ended up with a T354 iron. It's it's a rocket ship. But it does point to the fact that like these are two different golfers. You you can't give everybody what they want, but that's that's totally fine. You're you're gonna get the speed that you need. If you're a T350 guy, you're gonna get that forgiveness. Um, you know, on on off-center hits, the the T350 had the the highest ball speed. On, on those mishits, but that's fine because it also had the highest ball speed out of geometric center. So you're going to see, you're going to see wide deltas here. Also another, you know, wide delta. And this is one because you're looking for control and, and workability. T100 had the highest spin rate and compared to, <laughs> compared to the T350, the difference was 1500 RPMs. That is a lot. So. Well, well and, and remember this, and this is an important distinction. So we hit all these clubs at the exact same swing, right? So, so we swung same angle these clubs, attack, same everything, same, same shaft. Yeah. Now, in fairness, so this is a great comparison, and and it's necessary, absolutely. And I, you know, I obviously stand behind the testing. With this caveat, though, the player that hits that T one hundred they're going to more than likely have a much steeper angle of attack. And the reason for a lot of that spin is those lofts on those players' blades are weaker. And the reason they're weaker is they are anticipating that that player has a much steeper angle of attack. And therefore, they are actually generating distance due to de-lofting those irons and, and, and also their velocity. And that spin is their friend because it gives them control around the green. Versus the 350, usually they have a little bit more of a shallow angle of attack, and they're just looking to hit the ball as far as they can because they're losing distance as they age. So they really are two different swings. I think these points are critical that you raise, especially. Oh, and, and we, we lost, lost, we lost Gene. And, you know, the important thing is, is that Gene was able to get most of his point, but I think we lost them at a, a pretty critical juncture right there. I mean, I can chime in and we did a, uh, we did a product review for the new T-Series irons through TruSpec and myself and uh, our, our human robot, Blake Smith, uh, did a, uh, a little bit of a deep dive testing each one of these models and putting it in the hitting bay and comparing some data and some numbers and talking about some of the improvements in technology. And I, I will say from the current generation that's out there right now in anticipation of this, uh, this new T-Series launch. The acoustics on the 200 and the 350 are significantly improved. And I really like the changes that they made adding the 150 instead of just the 100S. So slightly larger footprint, a little bit different shape compared to the 100. So it's not just a, a carbon copy of the 100 with a little different sole and two degrees stronger loft. It's a physically different head. 
and the playability of that 150, I think that's going to hit a lot of players that are looking for not only a little bit more ball speed and still maintaining some of that workability, playability that the T100 player is looking for. So I think the 150 is going to be an extremely popular model. And the 200 in the current generation, the biggest feedback component that we got was the sound. It just didn't sound solid like a a quote-unquote traditional Titleist iron. And that was a big thing that we took away with the new T200 is the sound, the look, the consistency was significantly improved in this new generation. So I think Titleist did a really, really good job with the uh, the redesign of these T-series, especially building off the popularity of that T100 with that, that pure player in mind, and then building the 150, the 200, and the 350 kind of complementing a variety of different demographics. And Gene kind of hit it right on the head with the engineering components being geared toward different player demographics For and sure. different skill levels. Uh, that the, the T-Series coming down the line here is is going to be good for a lot of players out there. Yeah, it, it is important. I'm glad that he did point out that these golf clubs are are geared for two totally different golfers and, and most likely different attack angles as well. And if you look at the the seven iron lofts between the, between the T-100 and the T-350, and I know this is like the widest gap you're going to get, but there's a there's a five degree difference in se- in the seven iron. For sure. So that's that's 34 versus 29. And and look that of course you're going to see different different launch. You're going to see less spin. The stronger you go, some people will say, well, 29 degrees isn't a seven iron. You know, I think we're getting to that point. I think we're getting to that point where you really need to look at the lofts and define the the optimal lofts for your game and not worry so much about the number on there. I, I think that's that's the most important thing. But but again, going back to Gene's point, he's right. Different lofts are going to produce uh, different launch conditions and also the way that you're delivering the golf club. The one thing that that I love that you said, Chris, is the sound. That was the one thing that I that I noticed immediately with the T200 was the sound of this club was noticeably, be- noticeably better than the previous version. And for me, the T200 sounded a lot like the T150, which is great yeah. because I do think that of the four models in this in this lineup, I think the T150 and the T200 are going to be the most popular because they fit a larger range of golfers. You're going to see a lot of guys pairing up, I, in my opinion, I think you're going to see a lot of guys pairing up T150s and T200s to build blended sets. Um, and I think it's important that the sound is, is very similar. I think that that's important. Something else that I think is important is we talked about this this wide differentiation between between models and and that's good because it gives you options depending on what you're looking for. There wasn't a lot of differentiation between the T200 and the T in the T150. I mean, if I'm going down through yeah. the numbers, I mean, and you saw this because you you've had a chance to look at the data as well. I mean, we're looking at basically identical ball speed numbers out of geometric center. Uh, you know, launches, launches almost identical spin rates are, I mean, damn near identical within about 30 RPMs on, uh, on geometric center. So then I'm sure people are going to start to wonder, well, like what, what the hell is the difference? Like if these irons are producing very similar launch conditions and very similar ball speeds, what's the difference? Now, here's the difference. If you then go to, because we don't just robotic test these clubs right out of the center, we do uh, toe and also heel. 
this is where you start to notice the difference. So the delta between center and toe on the T200 was roughly a difference of about five RPMs. Now the difference between on the T the T150 between center and toe was uh, roughly eight. So you're losing eight miles an hour on toe strikes with the T150. You're only losing about five with the T200. And that's that's the important thing because the T200 is supposed to have a little bit more forgiveness, but in a very similar profile to that T150. So exactly. That's and this is again, this is why I think Titleist does such a great job with with their product lines, is they can sure they can design irons that have very similar characteristics, but then it gives you something that certain golfers need, like a two two hundred giving you a little bit more forgiveness for the guy that doesn't hit it out of the center all that often. And maybe the T one fifty looks a little bit too small to them. And yeah, I think you hit it right on the head there, Jay Wall, talking about the ability to build combo sets. So these, I mean, there's there's not going to be many guys out there that go a T100, a T350 combo, but having the ability to go 100 and 150, and then 150 and 200s, and 200s and 350s, I mean, those deltas for ball speeds do lend a pretty good complement to each other if you were to start to incorporate a couple of different models in the same set. Now, I, I don't think we're going to see very many players go the uh, what Justin Rose did with the the Cobra irons, as far as having you know, three different models in a set. But uh, that's a I mean, lot. It does it, it's a lot, right? Uh, I don't necessarily see there being very many problems that players would run into building these combo sets. And Titleist has even said, you know, we designed this entire T series of irons to be able to complement each other and build these blended sets to give players you know, the most opportunity of success as possible. And when we were doing our testing, you know, the, the, the robot data confirms what we were seeing in the bay during testing in this, this video that we did with TrueSpec. And I mean, the playability of them is, is very complementary of one another. Now, our tester, like I said, Blake Smith, the, the guy's a monster. He's six you know, four, and I mean, moves it faster than most tour players. He was hitting the T three fifty at two hundred and thirty yards with a six iron. But to Gene's point, he is smashing it with efficiency of a tour player, and uh, that's not necessarily the uh, the demographic that they were going after with that particular head design. Yeah, but it's entertaining to watch a guy hit a six iron two hundred and thirty yards. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man. Anyway, if you want to to get more of the insights from uh, our robotic testing with the titles T series lineup, we're gonna have those up on golf.com next week. Promise. Also have a, a social hit for those that uh, that frequent the fully equipped social media channels. We're at fully equipped golf for those that don't know on Instagram and at fully underscore equipped on Twitter. Um anyway, so that's that for titles T series. One more thing that I did want to get to that I found very fascinating. So TaylorMade released their new MG4 wedges. And these are the wedges that we've seen Colin Morikawa using uh, a few months ago when I was in uh, Charlotte at Wells Fargo. Rory had some of these in the bag. They were very early prototypes. And something that was very interesting about these early prototypes is to conceal them from from people like myself, those with, with prying eyes from knowing what exactly we were looking at, they stamped them MG3. 
but they had the RM on them. So I knew it was a different grind. Didn't realize that these were the soon to be released MG4s. And we have a story up on golf.com where I went through five things. And hopefully these stories are are working for people out there. If they're not, just shoot me a DM. I always will, I always appreciate feedback on, on my writing. But I'm trying to make these a little bit um, easier to digest and to try and hit the high points on these products. But one of the things that I did find very fascinating about MG4 was the way that they designed the grooves. So we've talked before about the difference between plated and unplated wedges, meaning wedges that have a, a chrome finish versus those who, um, you know, like a lot of tour pros like to have a raw face unplated. They're going to rust. They're going to have a patina finish. Uh, the difference between the two is wedges that have a raw face tend to have, uh, the spin, the spin degradation is quicker versus that of, of a chrome wedge. So you're going to start to notice a, a dip in and spin the more you use that raw wedge. So we've we've talked a lot about um, companies like Arcos that are out there. You know they have they have their their devices now where you're able to you know it started with basically a, a little sensor plug that you could plug into the butt end of your grip. Then they went to a really like a much smaller version that was almost. Uh, thinner i mean you it was pretty much like a like a ball marker and you're able you know from having devices like arcos you're able to track your rounds and then from there they were able to get into the strokes gain categories you're able to see where you're struggling where you're succeeding and the reason i bring up uh arcos is because tailormade used their own my tailormade plus to track a lot of the data when it comes to wedges and then use that data to help shape this new MG4 wedge. So what they found from looking at golfers who had used TaylorMade, my TaylorMade Plus and had logged 40 rounds, they found that on average, those golfers during those 40 rounds were using a wedge about 280 times. So 200 times from the fairway or maybe the rough and 80 times from the bunker. So what do you do when you have a number like that? Well, they went and then they start they went and they started to test MG3 versus MG4 post 280, meaning have that wedge hit 280 balls and then let's see what the spin rate's at. So they found that with MG3, the spin rate after 280 was 7500 RPMs. So with that information, they then designed this new what they're calling spin tread if you were to run your finger along the face of this new mg4 it feels very rough um i almost and this is gonna i don't know if, if this is like sacrilegious but do you remember the carbite wedge i do okay <clears throat> you remember how, it, the, the rough I mean, it's like a sandpaper surface and uh, anyway yep. it when i ran my finger along it it felt like the carbite it's it's got that like really rough surface to it and that's this tread that they added now it's going to help with spin. So once they added this to the face, they found that it actually helped with the overall durability of the grooves, but it also helps just like the tread on a tire, it helps push water off the face so that the ball can hang on the face a little bit longer. And with that with that data and the information that they had from my tailor-made plus they're able to get a new groove that's about a thousand rpms higher spinning after 280 now it doesn't mean that the wedge isn't going to see you know a dip in spin degradation 
But I do love that they are using data to help shape their golf clubs. Now, maybe they've done this in the past, but this is the first time that I've really seen a company come out and say, hey, look, we're using this data to help design our clubs. I don't know. It's, it, I, I, I find it cool. I mean, the, the innovation that some of these companies, just the lengths that they go to in product development and the amount of data that they collect and testing and implementation, uh, both on tour and then also for the consumer market. And uh, a, a buddy of mine, Greg Cesario, has kind of taken the reins for wedge design with TaylorMade. And I talked, he to, I talked to Caesar. Yeah, Caesar's amazing. He's a great guy and extremely knowledgeable and passionate about the wedge designs that he's implementing for TaylorMade. And because I mean, if we go back to when TaylorMade was kind of getting into that more serious player-oriented wedge, the the first iterations of them, not that great but and they'll even admit that they'll admit yeah. like one of the things that they really struggled with was was wet spin you know those yes. those wedges went <clears throat> high and they they knuckled and he yes. you know caesar even mentioned to us when we were talking to him he's like look high high and, and low spin that's not something you want with a wedge that's uh, no, that's, no, that's not designed for driver but that was something that they really struggled with and they've gotten better with the with the wet spin numbers but it has taken time. And I mean, Caesar in his own right is a player and his short game is, is solid to say the least. So he has uh, invested himself into working with the tour players and working with higher level amateurs that really appreciate the differentiation between playability and just having something as a skew to offer to the public. So and having him at the helm with the wedge design, the new grinds that are available are, are really solid and i mean i'm excited to do some testing once we get some samples here at true spec and take them out on the turf and and see how they perform in the the real world environment i've seen the uh the prototypes come through i've hit them in the bay but i want to get them out on the grass and, and do some testing but i'm knowing how passionate caesar is about the design i'm uh, i'm excited to test them personally yeah i i have some righties that came through no lefties very painful so I'm like you. I'm, I'm still I'm still waiting your life, my turn. Man. I'm still waiting my turn. Lefties always get uh get basically. I would say we get the shaft. We still do, even though it's not as near as bad as it was. You know, like a decade ago, we still get the shaft. I, I can understand. All right. Well, that feels like a good opportunity to now get into this week's interview. Arby's not here, but he did have the opportunity to interview Mason Dennison, who is the global footwear director at Adidas Golf. We really have. Anybody from the the soft goods, from the you know apparel and the shoe side on. So I am excited for this interview. During the time uh, from their chat, RB and Mason talked about the impact of foot pressure during your swing, collaborating with athletes on golf shoes, designing laceless golf shoes, and the future of golf footwear. It's a great interview. Enjoy it. All right. So I'd like to welcome to Fully Equipped, Mason Dennison, the Global Footwear Director for Adidas Golf. Mason, welcome. Welcome to Fully Equipped. Oh, excited to be on, Ryan. I love talking footwear. We say that that's the hard goods of the soft goods part of the business. So it's <laughs> yeah, <fun>. it's <laughs> very true. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 a lot going on, and I think you know we we are an equipment podcast. We're an equipment focused podcast, but I think for me, a lot of people really don't put enough emphasis on their footwear, and I've noticed it myself. Probably 
as I've maybe gained a little bit of club at speed and really looked at kind of what works for me, where I play, all these other different outside elements that really impact the shoe. But from your perspective, what is your goal when you're educating golfers about the different types of footwear that you offer? I think the goal is to to have every consumer get a product that's best for them. And that, and that's honestly very, very difficult because there's, <laughs> we won't even get into aesthetics, but everyone has an opinion about what they want to wear, right? Whether it's right for their foot or not. But there's a lot of it, a lot of it's about function. Do you walk or do you ride in a cart? Um, what's your swing speed? Do you want a spike shoe or a spikeless shoe? Because those offer different um, benefits, right? So I think for me, uh, we try to build a lineup that really gives every consumer out there, regardless of price point they're at, um, what style they're looking for or what function that we have something that allows them to be the most comfortable as they can be on the golf course. We always, I, in my opinion, when you forget you have a shoe on your foot, that's when you know something's working well. It just kind of like blends in with your body and it's distraction free. So that's kind of our goal. And then there's just a lot that happens within that. And it's kind of like, um, you know, to draw a parallel, it's like a well-fitted golf club, right? Like, you know, you just feel like you're making your normal golf swing and it's just, it does what it's supposed to do. And that's a good point, actually, you know, to think that it's, it's not even on your foot. It's like, oh, this, this one spike hits me in the wrong spot. Mm-hmm. Or, it's, you know, my toes kind of squitch. Like when, it, when you got to write the right shoe on, I think there really is this, this like connection of, you know, being one, right? Yeah. When it comes yes, to the shoe. Absolutely. Um, the one thing I, I wanted to ask, and we can, we'll go down some retro stuff. Cause I know you guys just released the, the MC 80, which I think is, is a very cool looking shoe. And there's, there's a lot of tech inside of this classic looking shoe. But when we think of golf clubs, I always think I always ask engineers, like, is it the materials side of the business or the material side of things outside of what you guys do that really brings development into golf clubs? Like have it be new carbon fiber, new resins, new ways of creating manufacturing. How, how, what drives for you? Is it, do, do companies that say have a new material approach you, or do you say, look, we'd like to develop a material that does this and you collaborate together? Or is it like kind of one or the other? (laughs) probably not going to shock you. It's both. I, I think being a part of such a, an amazing global sports brand, I would say there are some things that we do in-house. So there are things that are done out of the headquarters in Germany, where we find out that there's a new material coming or a new technology. And we kind of look in under the hood to see what it's doing and what are the benefits. And it might be, uh, oftentimes it starts in running or it starts in football soccer in this country, but it, that, that'll be the sport that they roll out like a new, really exciting technology. And then the golf guys are jumping on the side going, Hey, we're a cool sport too. Like, why don't we, why don't you let us have that? So we, we you know, we're, we're off to the side a little bit sometimes in terms of being the first ones in the brand to get a new technology, but we're, we're very close in how we work with them. But to your supplier point, we're pushing suppliers all the time. We're going out to them and saying this, Hey, how do we make this better? And at the same time, suppliers are looking for business. So they're showing up at our door all the time going, here's my new list of materials. Here's why you should be taking this. So that open market, so to speak on the material side can, if used correctly, you can have some great benefits. Definitely. Now from a, a force perspective, because of the, the side to side, like the lateral movement versus just the walking, is there a, cause we think of when golfers make a golf swing, the, the amount of pressure they create to create force, how much force is put on the side of a shoe? Cause I, I think it's pretty unbelievable when people like golfers realize how much pressure, not just professionals, but just every regular golfer. Like if you imagine trying to make a golf swing on a frictionless surface, it's basically impossible, but to, to be able to hold your foot in place, there's a lot going on there, isn't it? 
It's a, it's a ton of force. I mean, we do force plate studies where you can see the heat mapping of the foot throughout a swing. And obviously the, the red bands of color where the, you know, the orange and red are where the most pressure is being put, but it's, it's up to three to five times body weight. I mean, when you're really driving and you see some of the pros, they actually come off the ground because that's, you know, using your feet and twisting um, and exploding off the ground is, is how the power is generated in swing. And the challenge in golf is everyone wants a stable shoe over the ball. But once they're done hitting that ball and you only hit a ball for a total of what, well, it depends on your handicap, but a couple minutes around, you're actually making contact with a ball, maybe a minute. Um, and then for the other four hours, you're walking. So the magic recipe in golf is how do you make something stable and rigid enough over the ball? But when you turn and start walking, it feels like a flexible, comfortable shoe. And so you really need a shoe to almost morph into those two situations really well. And it used to be the product was either really stiff and it was just a tour product that was like a board or there was like comfortable product. And now we found ways through materials and designs to kind of blend both, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's because I mean, there's, there's a whole array when you talk about, and I think, I think the, the one shoe that always stands out to me because it was like the, my formative golf years and, and it's still a product that's available now is like the tour 360. Yes. Like when that came out and you had this, this very definitive separation from the, the heel of the shoe to the, like the front, the fourth, foot for front of your shoe, the balls of your yep. feet, I guess, basically. And then the arch, which in a way, because it doesn't necessarily help impact force on the ground, there was a separation between the two and how it wrapped and all these different elements of how it worked. And are, I, are you looking behind me as you speak? I, well, no, yeah, I, did, <laughs> I didn't mean to pull that from that from the poster behind you. Uh, but I can, I can remember distinctly having a white pair with, with like the red sides on it. And it was like, I had those for years. And it, to me, it was kind of that, that first understanding of what a platform can do from a performance perspective, because if you're out playing, say, early in the morning and you, you're on a side hill line, it's a little dewy, you'd rather have a lot of traction than something that might be spikeless versus someone who just goes plays in the afternoon and wants something that might be stylish and, and doesn't necessarily need all of those traction features. So to your point, I guess um, what I'm trying to ask is, how does how has the platform changed because of the like because of the way that you do research on how that shoe works and interacts with the ground and the golfer? You know, it's boy, it's changed so much the last ten years and probably a lot in the last five years. I think the spikeless movement has taken has taken over globally in terms of units. I mean, we're upwards. It depends on market, but seventy five percent or more of the units sold today are spikeless, and and people started wearing more spikeless and with that came comfort, right? Because inherently a spikeless shoe, you remove the cleats receptacles. You don't feel them underneath your foot on firm surfaces. They're more flexible. They're a little bit lighter. So the perception of what comfort was in a golf shoe became the standard got raised by wearing shoes that were more casual. Um, and then the challenge was really put on the How do we make spike footwear more comfortable? Because you can't keep spike footwear still this more stiff, stable, structured tour only shoe and then have everyone sort of move into this comfort, comfortable spikeless product and expect to keep people in spiked, right? I mean, we were at risk of how many MB irons are sold at retail nowadays, right? It's a tour only item. Not a lot. Not a lot. And so like spiked footwear is at risk of going that way where it's only a tour high performance item if it doesn't evolve. And I think the platform in general has evolved a lot. And it's through materials like Boost, light strike that we use, like foams that are really incredible that give you stability, but comfort and cushioning. Um, we found ways to shave weight. So the, the product's all lighter. If, if you pick up a, the latest two or 360 that we make now, 
people will still pick it up and go, man, that's pretty heavy. And I, and it, and it kills me because it's 20% yeah. lighter than the 360 that you just talked about. That's on my wall, but it's not as light as the modern spikeless, really lightweight shoes. And it shouldn't be, but everything has gotten lighter. Even the spiked traditional footwear has gotten, gotten lighter. So I think toolings, um, they're still very stable, but the cushioning's gotten better is what I would say. And, and specific traction, we've found ways to give you the grip without having 10 spikes. How many shoes do you see with 10 spikes on the outsole anymore? You almost don't see yeah, I just, I don't, I actually can't think of one to be honest. Because you don't need 10 spikes, you can get the grip without having 10 and it can make the shoe lighter and more comfortable. So like a sports car, if you can get, you know, you can shave weight from it to make your lap time faster, but not give up handling, you know, then, you know, you make those trade-offs. So I think we found ways to do that. How has, how has Boost changed the way you are able to create the cushioning? Because, you know, you mentioned it there. And I think that's one of the, one of the, the key and I, I see, I, I mean, to be like, I'm gonna say I'm, a, I'm not a sneakerhead, but like, yeah. I will sit there and watch like YouTube videos on shoes now, or I'll see it on Instagram or something like that, where it's like, this is actually kind of like really neat. Where the other, you know, the people that either they tear watches apart or they cut shoes in half. I'm always very interested in that kind of stuff. If they're pulling <laughs> it apart, I'm gonna watch it. And to see what that does from a, a rebound perspective, how has that changed the way that you can make shoes lighter, but also are able to make them stronger and more comfortable for those people that, you know, walk 18, maybe walk 36 a day once in a while. I would say boost single-handedly changed our, our company. It's probably the most important technology in the last 30 years that the brand has brought out. Forget golf just in total. Yeah. It is iconic. Um, people call it the cottage cheese. What is that texture when it first came out? It looked awkward to some people. Now it's it's um, funny enough. Those markers become identifiers over the long term. So now when you see a shoe, you know with that heavy that heavy texture in it, you know you've got you've got that boost, right? That boost pellet, that boost foam that you're looking for. Um, I would say what Boost did for us in golf is it immediately gave us a comfort advantage. When you stepped into Boost for the first time, a lot of shoes had the cushion, but they didn't have the rebound. So a lot of times cushion was done through the dampening. So if you lay on a soft pillow top mattress, it's comfortable and you sink into it, but it does, it's hard to get off that mattress because you're, you're, you're yeah. sunk down <laughs> yeah. into it, right? You got to like, how do I get up? Well, boost had the ability to give you the cushion, but it gave you the rebound and people really felt like when they were walking that they had like springs under their feet. Like you yeah. got more, you got some energy back with every step. And so it gave you this springy, comfortable, cushy feel that was really unique amongst the industry. And uh, the, so the step in comfort was incredible. The experiential comfort was great. We know golfers are on their feet a lot. So I think it gave us a huge advantage. And that's what, that's why we use it in almost half our lineup today has, has some sort of boost in it. It's funny because you mentioned, uh, we, we talked about just a moment ago, spikeless. Yeah. But, you know, you guys got a, sh a shoe that's laceless. Like we, we, we do <laughs> with the code chaos. Like what, what is it like trying to bring those elements together to create something where it's like, it, you know, it truly goes on like a sock. It's really hard. Um, when we walked that brief over to the designer, he was like, Oh my gosh. Cause he, he's also like, he plays basketball and he knows how hard it was for the basketball team to create something sort of similar, but it's a challenge. How do you, Okay, so a couple of things with laceless. One is getting the stability that you need laterally without being able to cinch, whether it's a boa dial or the laces. The other thing is how do you get into the shoe and then still have it not be like a baggy sock on your foot? You got to be able to get into it and then have it still fit somewhat snug. And then it has to give you lateral stability, but be comfortable and also be waterproof with this higher sock. 
So it was a very, very difficult endeavor. Um, but it, those are the kind of challenges that we love at Adidas Golf. We, our mantra is the most progressive golf brand, and we like to push silhouettes and technologies and what can be possible with a golf shoe. We challenge ourselves to create a shoe that didn't have a, a lace, didn't have a BOA disc system, but still was something that was tour worthy. And so that was a, it was a fun project, obviously not a high volume project, a little more driven by probably Japan and Korea from a volume perspective, consumer um, adapting to that, but still something that turns heads and shows what we're capable of. From that perspective, you know, you talked about markets in there and, and how like, different markets kind of search for different things. How, for, so I'll get, I want to go get to the other question because now I got my mind turning with the, the yeah. other part of that, but is there something from professionals where they've come to you and I, I actually can remember being at the um, the launch event in LA for the one of the new ones there and, and talking about the materials and talking and hearing the professionals talk about the thing that they really asked for in their shoe because to your point like not only are they playing in them they're practicing in them and they're out there for a long a long time so and and week to week different course conditions all of those different elements come together is there a do you have a specific example of a time where like one of uh, one of your athletes has come to you and say like look I like this, but can we do something different? And like kind of how that's driven the idea of innovation. Yep. I, I have so many examples. It's, it's, it's incredible. I mean, shout out to our sports marketing team um, for letting us have such access to these, these athletes, because you would not believe, and again, you're in, you're in the club world a lot, right? So everyone talks about clubs and the, you know, athletes wanting, you know, track man and shafts and all that footwear. You, if you're not aware of it, you'd be shocked at how in, detail athletes get with their footwear. I've had situations where I've walked a shoe out to an athlete and I had a one millimeter difference in an insult between two different shoes. And they can tell when they stand over the ball, they can tell that their height has changed. It's, it's incredible the precision that they have the proprioception and the awareness they have to footwear being like equipment and whether it's code chaos, I mean, Terrell Hatton, we work with closely on code chaos. Uh, when we sent him some prototypes there, he was talking about on the toe down, some things that he wanted to change. And also he noticed in certain situations, his foot would slip just a little bit in wet grass at this type of course. And so what we did is we changed, you know, where we shaped and placed the lugs on the, the twist grip pattern. Um, that's something that didn't come up with our in-house testers because they don't play at his level. Um, but yeah, whether it's two or three sixty, code chaos or many of our top shoes, we bring in information from a lot of different athletes that affects the visual um, execution of the product, the cleat placement. Um, another one I'll tell you is um, on a product we have coming out next year in spring 24, um, we put the spike up closer to the toe because of feedback from Xander. He said, you know, when I, when I get off of the grass into like, you know, like chips or mulch or just kind of some dry stuff in the desert, I'm finding that sometimes my back foot slips as I get to the toe off part of my swing you know, right up on that toe. So we really pushed the spike towards the toe further than ever before. So yeah, I mean, when you look at a product, you would never know that all these little comments come in to kind of influence it, but they make it better. They're great insights from the best players in the world. LPGA as well. We're doing so much testing with um, the great suite of LPGA athletes we have. So it's fun. It's amazing what they're able to perceive. You'd be shocked at what they can tell, like I said, but it makes us better. And that's why it's important. I guess that's the one thing from a, from a design perspective, when we think of clubs, like if someone gets a, a, a set of irons, it's like, God, oh, it's not quite right. They can go to the van, and, you know, tweak oh. the, the lie and loft. And that's oh. really simple, right? Like 
you can't just be like, oh yeah, I like this spike. Can we, can we move it like three millimeters up? Cause it's like, no, it's gotta go back to production and we gotta go over here. Yeah, like, we always say there's no lead tape for, for shoes. So yeah. we, it's heartbreaking. There's been times where we've worked on something for four to six weeks is maybe as quick as we can get a new sample made and shipped, right? And you walk it up to an athlete and they hit three balls in it and go, mm, I need a little more reinforcement than that. And you're thinking, I just lost a month. Like I, I just, yeah. for me to now remake that to another level of stability or to, to, to tweak it is not going back to a truck. We don't have a bespoke truck where we can make shoes. Shoemaking is so complicated. The 3D nature of it, the materials, the last, the heating process, upper and outsoles coming together with the right glues at the right time. It's a very complicated, still very labor intensive um, execution. And so, yes, we're not as nimble is the changing the shafts out and, you know, changing angles on the fly. That kind of stuff is really difficult in footwear on top of the fact that we don't have a track man. If someone doesn't like a shoe, it's hard to figure out why they can be telling you something that's going on there inside, but if you're having to perceive it and, and think about what that actually means. So to your, to that, like what you just mentioned there, it, that is like, that is, that would be like the fastest time possible, right? Like say what, like six, like a month to be like, I want, this is, this is what we've, we've come up with this is like the specs with golf things are done through like cnc and mm -hmm. sorry not cnc but also like cad yep. is that how shoes are designed to like and i'm gonna no. i'm gonna dig into the nitty-gritty here no no it it's a great question depends on what stage early on we do a lot of cad work a lot of rendering work at some point you actually have to hand over really a, a detailed file um but yes early on when when, when our designers are sketching they're looking um, you know, if you looked at the renderings is what we call, they're kind of exaggerated with lines that flow off them. They're really beautiful pictures of the shoe that they're designing. When you get into actually putting it on what we call like a shell pattern, you're actually putting it on the exact shape of the upper where you have to place exactly where each part is going to each material. Um, and then that gets sent into a file, um, to be able to make the shoe and stretch it around the last. So yeah, but there is a, we're maximizing digital tools. We can see 3D renderings of stuff and spin it around. Um, the most complicated part of shoe manufacturing, just from the equipment side of it, is the outsole. So when we get to new outsoles, you'd be blown away when you have an outsole on a screen in 3D and you're looking at cross sections. It looks like an engineering blueprint for a, you know, a new, um, you know, facility that they're going to like a, a massive building they're going to make or something like that. There's cross sections. There's material callouts, but Outsoles are tooling for us. They're made with steel molds, just like a, like a lot of clubs. And there's a lot of different materials coming together, temperatures to consider, stack heights, location of receptacles and spikes if those are in there, uh, weight considerations, flexibility is a big one because of the foot and where it flexes. And we spend hours and weeks pouring over those, going back from 2D to 3D, 2D to 3D, um, before we hit go and open a real steel mold to get a part in. So in a way, uh, and I, um, the way I'm conceptualizing it is because of uh, my, my wife's a big sewer. So yeah. like the idea of like cutting out all of those like layers, they have to be put on in the right order, mm -hmm. in the right shape within a millimeter of variance, probably even, even less so because of the way the lasts are designed. So when it, when someone gets a, their standard, so for me, it's like, you know, I get my eight and a half wide and I go, okay, well, I really like this pair. Let's go to the next one because I've worn them out. I'm going to get the same pair every single time. But for the, for the, even for the players, like, and even from the, the different models, right? Like I'm thinking of, again, the, uh, the MC, like the MC 80, right? Like you've got a, you've got a classic looking shoe 
which which has it, it's not a saddle style, but you you look at it from the bottom and you you're holding it up right now. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll put some pictures of these out, but there's you see the stability on the bottom of this thing. You see what it looks like. It does not look like a traditional shoe, and then you hold it up and you're like, oh man, these things look pretty dope. Yeah, well, <laughs> from, from like a classic retro styling. I don't mean other things don't look cool, but yeah, that and that's the goal is, and, and so many I'm sure so many people that work in creating whatever they create and in whatever industry they're in, there's so many details that go in a product. But when you look at a golf shoe, like the MC 80 and you flip it over all those nubs, all those little traction elements, the torsion bar, the foam in the midsole, every detail you're looking at was thought over for a long period of time. It's placed where it's placed for a reason based on experience, based on data from heat map studies, based on tour player feedback, based on 18 months of testing and multiple rounds um, across a variety of different foot shapes. So I would say when you find a, a shoe that fits really good, just appreciate it because a lot can go wrong in making a shoe. They're, it's very, very complicated. And that's why we're pretty proud of technologies like Boost and Light Strike and um, many of the things that we have in our shoes through our process that's very rigorous. Um, I think that's why they're so comfortable, but it, it, a lot has to come together and be right for a shoe to fit really well, be durable, look good, check all those boxes. So from the, from the new to the old and kind of bringing them together, there's, there's shoes like the Samba and the Sand Smith. And there is, there's obviously like a class, like you go into this process, you're not just taking that shoe and say, Oh, we'll just put golf spikes on it. Like that is not what's happening. <laughs> so yeah. what is it like incorporating? I think I, I think of shoe design in a way kind of like car design, you know, it's, it's, there's fashion forward and there's all these different things, but like, if someone's designing a, a Ford or the, you know, the new, I just think of the new Toyota, the Land Cruiser, like yeah. they come out, they go, it's got to look like a Land Cruiser, but it's got to look really, it still has to be new. Like it has to bring the merger or two. What is it like merging those two together, bringing together the classic styling, but saying, look, we're going to bring a lot more technology. We're going to bring the stability. We're going to bring it into the golf space because, you know, you, you, you might not want to wear these playing indoor soccer or just playing soccer, but they're really specifically designed for golf. What is it like bringing those elements to that style of shoe? Um, I think it's exciting because I think, I think one thing that's very important for us is to do what's right for the consumer in our, in our sport, we're a performance category. And I know golf has a lifestyle angle. We know that good lifestyle product, you know, the Samba, everyone, the Samba is trending right now within the brand. Sambas are being sold everywhere, but we also have a golf Samba. So, you know, they don't look a whole lot different on first glance, do they? But this is an example of where, okay, we're going to bring a Samba in, which is a, an Adidas classic product, but now we're going to use better leathers. We're going to use waterproof leathers. We are going to put in a better insole. You might not know that, but instead of a really paper thin EVA insole, we're going to have a polyurethane or an ortholite insole. By the way, the cup sole, we're going to carve out the inside of it and drop in more cushioning because you're on your feet for six to eight miles in a golf round. So you put on a golf Samba, it's a little bit lighter. It's got better cushioning. Uh, it's waterproof and it's got a spikeless golf outsole engineered for the golf swing. So on first glance, our goal with a classic like this with a Samba is to make it look on first glance, just like the OG. So it has the lineage. But then we work in all the details, the technologies to make sure that the consumer experience in golf is, is, is good because that's what we need. Otherwise, it's a fail. You buy the shoe you like the look of and you go out and you fall on your face because it doesn't have golf specific traction. It leaks within five minutes and you're like, what the heck? They didn't think about the golfer. So you got to remember the golfer and the usage, I would say. It's a little bit different when you go into the golf classics like MC80. 
The challenge here is how do you bring in something that looks very uh, classic in design with broguing details, welted construction, but how do you make it feel modern? And that's what that's really fun because that's where light strike and drop in boost that's hidden and all these things make what this looks like. It's a heavy, stiff, classic shoe. When you put this on your foot, it feels super comfortable, super flexible, and really lightweight. And that's that's our DNA is to take something that's classic, put modern technology in and make it feel like the, the most comfortable shoe you've ever had on your foot. But it's the look that you want. And that's the Adidas DNA coming into the shoe the right way. So to, to finish this off, I got to ask, because I, I, you know, I always think from, a, again, from a club or for just from an equipment perspective, it's always interesting because, you know, we get stuff. It's, it's like, what could they possibly do that's different and better? Like, what, what is driving footwear forward over the next, say, say five years? Like, what, what is the, is there a single thing? Is it, is there, is there multiple things that are, that are really driving it? Is it, is it the, the styling that people want? Is it new materials that are coming in? Like, what is the most exciting part of what you see the future of and the continued future of, of golf footwear? Yeah, wow, boy. If you know, if you have that answer, can you email that over to me when we're done? I'd love we'll to send it to a big focus. Group. <laughs> well, I mean, we have some, we, you know, we look into the crystal ball all the time. I would say for us, we're, first of all, we're excited about the growth of the game. And then, you know, how many new people are coming to the game that didn't try golf before. So that's exciting to us. I think a couple things, styling, aesthetics, this versatile trend, uh, what's, what's, what you're able to wear on a golf course, I think that that's going to continue to evolve. So you're going to see more and more product that you wouldn't have seen five or 10 years ago. So more, um, what appears to be more casual lifestyle, um, versatile spikeless product. I think that'll continue to reach new audiences and kind of the sneaker culture that's emerged with golf footwear, I think will continue to grow where there's a lot of collaborations and cool stuff going on. Um, but I do think golf is a performance sport. So I think technology and material innovations will continue to lead the way. I think, you know, people are looking for what's next. What's what's after boost? What's after BOA for closure systems? Is there a new way you can execute the spike system? And so I think technology, materials, um, and style will continue to kind of lead people to new places. Um, but yeah, it, it's an exciting time to be in golf. I can tell you a couple of years ago, no one was knocking on our door to do collaborations or kind of, you know, do that fashion side of it. And now you wouldn't, you wouldn't imagine how often we're hit up to do some new collaboration with some brand that we, you know, never thought would be interested in golf. Golf is a, it's a hot spot right now for people to want to be involved in. Which I mean, I'm, cool. I'm wearing one right now. I got, I mean, I got the, the, the t-shirt on, but I got yeah, the, I got the cart. hoodie as well. Not the sweatshirt yeah. from uh burden card side, Christian Hafer's thing. Yeah. I, I big fan of that stuff. And yeah, I mean, like, you know, I'll be, I'll be honest. I was, I was cruising the website a little bit recently. And uh, I think of like the, the idea cross low, which people go yeah. look it up. Like that's a funky looking shoe. Right. And like from a good way, like you can, there's visible technology on the outside of the shoe. And I think from a, from an outside perspective, a lot of people look at that and go, eh, like, I don't, I don't really think of that as being a traditional shoe, but when they, when they either put it on their feet or they're at the golf course and because things are getting more casual, but I think to your point, like very, like very importantly, like more fashion driven that someone's going to put that on. It's like, you know, I'm going to style that with like a cool pair of shorts and a nice shirt. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's, it's something that allows me to be individualized because we see that in golf clubs as well. People are customizing their grips and their golf bags and getting hats and gloves and basically anything they can possibly put their own touch on to bring it to the golf course to see that in shoes, I think is, is really cool. And, uh, you know, again, 
I, I just think that this is, it's such an underlooked part of the equipment. And I, I really like that. I like the, it's the hard goods side of, of the soft goods business. Right. Yeah. It's clever. It, I like, yeah. Cause it is it's a piece. It's a piece of gear. Like how, like how often are, do you find players are changing their, their shoes? Up? Do they like, is it like, uh, you know, every tournament they want to pair or, or how does that work for you guys when you do the, like even for scripting of majors and stuff like it that? It depends on the player. Some players change every week. Some you'd be shocked. Some wear them for three months and just seem to be okay with it because they break it in and they get used to it and it's familiar, you know? So it depends on the personality there. But I think one thing you just touched on to me is the lines are getting blurred. It used to be that you went to a golf course and you changed into your golf shoe and it was only a shoe that you wore during golf and then you took it off. And now outdoor is blending with golf. Performance is blending with lifestyle. Lifestyle is blending into golf into new ways. So it's like there's a lot of blending and crossover, I would say. So a lot of the product isn't it's made for golf. But the appearance of it can be the usage of it can be in other environments in and around the game of golf. And there's more people wanting to wear their golf shoe throughout the day, not just during their golf round. So it's like the lifestyle element of it and the usage of the product is through like a longer period of time. And, and that's changing the materials we use, not just in footwear, but apparel as well. And the thought process and stuff like that. But um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I look at the, I look at the Stan Smiths. So like you'd finish around a golf and go out for dinner and people would be like, Oh, that's great. You wouldn't even know. You don't even know what you're wearing. Oh, he's got a Stan Smith on that you golfed in. So how cool that's is that? awesome yeah might, you might have a little sand under in the sole still you got to kick <laughs> off but other than that you'd be all good um mason again i i really appreciate your time um you know for anyone who's looking and, and curious you know head over to ujas.com check out their golf selection they got a huge amount of of shoes that i think really is something for everybody whether you are just looking for you got they got high top performance stuff you got low style like uh, low top Classic shoes, like we talked about with the Samba and the Stan Smith, there really is everything for everyone out there. What, what's your? Do you have a favorite, or can you? Not, are they like children? I do. I mean, there's so many. I you laugh. I got shoes. I'm surrounded by shoes. I, swear, <laughs> I, I have shoes all over my garage and my house. My kids trip over them, but you know, like ZG23s. We went through the MCs, but to me, Code Chaos is my favorite. Um, what I love about Code Chaos is it's kind of the ultimate blend of kind of versatile, sort of fashion with performance i say that not because a lot of people wear these off the course but it has a very it has an attitude and a stance that's very bold and progressive yet it's also very technical it's spikeless but it feels like it grips like a spike shoe so it's this like it rides this really fine line between tour performance and kind of really cool not your normal golf shoe and there's nothing else like it in my opinion in the marketplace it's one of the top selling shoes we have globally um so this silhouette code chaos 22 currently out now um this is probably the one i would grab more than any other right now that right now and because the world cup's going on and we're watching all the world cup games in my house i got i'm a girl dad samba's got a soft spot in my heart as well well i'm, I'm a girl dad too and like you know you talk about a lot of shoes i got a lot as you for those who might know and follow me on instagram there's a, there's a lot of golf clubs sitting around <laughs> my shop at any given moment so i'd clear my bench to my computer when i yes. do this kind of stuff so uh, again mason i really appreciate your time uh, anyone remember go check out uh, adidas.com check out their golf selection they got a huge amount of stuff and uh, there's there really is there's something for everybody thanks ryan appreciate it and that'll do it for episode 203 203 of fully equipped thanks again to mason for the time as always if you're looking for more gear goodness, check us out on social. We are at fully underscore equipped on Twitter and at fully equipped golf on Instagram. Thanks as all for listening. We'll see you next week.